The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Father God, we gather together to encourage one another. We gather together to inspire one another to follow you. We gather together to spur one another on to love and good works. Father God, my prayer is that the gathering would be the starting place for ascending. And when we talk about making disciples, we're not talking about making decisions. We're not talking about people making a prayer, praying a prayer. We're talking about inviting people to come to the one who can set them free to become everything that you, Father God, have created them to be. God, there are so many in our world who are so bound up and you long to set us free. And Jesus said, the one who the Son sets free, you'll be free indeed. And when we come to you, you don't turn us away but you fill us with your spirit. Not to make us feel good, but so that we can become partners with you in your great redemption plan. I love that image of that dam. I don't like the fact that there's a dam, but I love the imagery. And it's actually not the first time it comes to mind that that's been brought in this place. God, we are so much the obstacle to what you want to do. My prayer, Father God, is that you would break through those things in us that hold us back. That your spirit would have freedom to move in us and through us in this place and beyond this place. Father God, I thank you for that picture which was not a harvest on the peninsula at the chapel. But there is a harvest to be gathered throughout West Auckland and beyond, but God, you've called us into this place and you've long given us a burden for this part of Auckland. We've been praying for this part of Auckland. So God, have your way in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A number of times when I've been to a church service and it kind of feels like the, um, when you get to the service, the sermon, that's kind of the main event. Um, my prayer is that the sermon 
never becomes the main event. It becomes maybe a, a, uh, a thread that uh, gives us the journey that we're on. Um, but we've long wanted and talked about. Um, at any point in the service, if you need a touch from God, there's never a point where you can't go, can someone pray with me? And if it's a touch of healing, Bill's invitation. If you've got a, particularly if you've got an experience of having been healed, because often folk who have had an incredible experience of being healed are folk who will in turn pray for others. So talk with Bill. I want to see teams of people who will encourage one another and challenge one another to be what God has created us to be. It doesn't seem like 23 Sundays ago. In fact, it's, not, it's more than 23 Sundays, but we've spent 23 Sundays so far in the book of Genesis. And we've been walking through the broad story of human history. And today we see this major shift in the Genesis narrative um, from the story of humanity to the story of Abraham and Sarai, who will later become Abraham and Sarah, and the beginning of what would become the nation of Israel. The name Abraham means exalted father. The name Abraham, on the other hand, is best explained when God says, for I have made you the father of many nations. It's an interesting statement. I have made you, not I will make you. I have made you the father of many nations. And at this stage, um, Abraham's still got no kids. See, God sees what is and what will be as what is. He sees the end from the beginning and he clears what is. Sarai, on the other hand, means my princess. Princess or a woman of strength. Whereas the name Sarah, so my princess, it's mine, it's possessive. It's Sarah is the non-possessive version, which is simply princess. And so Sarah is no longer just a princess to her immediate family, no just a no longer just a woman of strength for her immediate family. She becomes the princess for the future nature of Israel, nation of Israel, and much more. And so this morning we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. And it moves on. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from the area of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years 
and he died in Haran. So the story starts in Ur of the Chaldeans, which seems simple enough until you actually try to work out where Ur was. The most generally accepted location is down here. Now there are some, however, who give an alternative location up just north of Haran. The location in Iraq, or what's now Iraq, down here, uh, certainly fits better with Acts chapter 7 verse 2, which talked about, I think, last week, where Stephen is about to be stoned and he preaches a sermon, and in it he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Iran. So it's Mesopotamia is down in that lower region. Our reference to this question, or one reference which questions this location, is in Joshua 24, where Joshua says to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So this map shows that the city of Ur in modern Iraq is actually on the same side of the river as the land of Canaan. But albeit across a very, very large desert and the journey that they map out uh, would indicate that they had to at least cross the river. So which one is it? Like a lot of details in the Bible, we can spend a lot of time working out the detail. And uh, while that may be fascinating for some, it's very easy, just simply becomes a search for information. How fruitful such a discussion might be, one has to ask. However, there is a detail in this verse which is much more important, in my mind at least. I talked last week about the possibility of conversations that Abraham may have had with Shem, who may have talked with Methuselah, who likely talked with Adam, and therefore the, the possibility that Abraham would have known these great stories of old. But certainly, the story of the Tower of Babel would have been very familiar to Abraham's generation. It was only two or three hundred years earlier than this time in which we are now reading. And the Great Flood was only one or two hundred years before that. So the story as we're reading it today is placed like 400 years after the Flood. And so this whole generation, alive in Abraham's time while Terah and his family are making this journey, this whole generation, think how well we know stories from the last 400 years. And these weren't small events that happened in the last 400 years. 400 years ago there was this flood that wiped out all life on earth. And somewhere around 200 years earlier than this time in which we got this story, God had confused all the languages. And so God had been a major player in these two major world events in the last 400 years. 
And yet it seems that by this point in the story, men have lost sight of the one true God. You see, knowing the stories about what God has done in history and giving God any place in my story is two very different things. shouldn't really surprise us. How many people do you know who have had some sort of experience of God? They've grown up in church. They've heard all the Bible stories. And they've probably had some personal experience of God but now they've turned away from their faith. And we go, well, that's just because of the nature of church today. But if we look in Hebrews, it talks about those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and they've fallen away. These aren't people who sat in the pew quietly week after week and then gave up. It's kind of like they tasted. They've shared. And yet they have somehow walked away. And so humanity hasn't changed. It's one thing to know the truth. It's one thing to know the story. It's one thing to understand that God works in history. It's another one to trust him with your life. And so we find that Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, yeah, he lived behind the, uh, beyond the Euphrates River, but he worshipped other gods. In spite of all their knowledge about what God had done in such recent history, through the great flood, through the scattering at Babel, in fact, there are some Jewish traditions that suggest that not only did Terah worship other gods, that he actually manufactured other gods for people to worship. This idea that he, the story is told that he um, manufactured idols and sold them. And that story therefore contains the understanding that Abraham grew up in an idol shop. Can you imagine the environment? Ashley, you made a comment in your earlier about growing up in a, in a godless context. Abraham grew up in a godless context. Grew up surrounded by idolatry. And yet it was here in the midst of this idolatrous generation that Abraham came into a knowledge of and a relationship with the one true God creator of heaven and earth. Again, from Stephen's sermon. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Last week I said it didn't matter whether you were a middle child or a youngest child or even a youngest of eight. It also doesn't matter what environment you grow up in. It doesn't matter how godless your world is. God will still reach out to you in that place. Years ago, when I was working with Bible League, I got the opportunity, I, 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 came, I was introduced to this DVD called um, More Than Dreams. 
and it was told half a dozen stories of Muslims in various parts of the world who have had this encounter with the man in white. Jesus appears to Muslims in dreams and they go searching and they uncover, discover, they encounter the living God. And I've heard those stories so, so often. God comes looking for people in the midst of the most godless generation. So when we look at our generation and say, what hope is there? There is hope because God comes and finds people in the midst of what is otherwise hopeless. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And in John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless, or comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. We have this incredible mystery of God drawing and us seeking. And I believe it's that God stirs something in us to seek after him. And so God found Abraham, and Abraham found God. God reached out to you, and you've responded to him. That's why we're here this morning. And we're at all different parts on that journey of responding to him. But that's why we're here. And for some of us, God found us in a Christian family. And for some of us, God found us far from a Christian family. God found us in the midst of our brokenness. God is still in the business of finding people in the toughest of places. And there are people all over West Auckland and beyond that God is seeking out. And they're seeking him. They don't even know that it's him they're looking for, but they know that there's got to be more to life. And as Dolly Parton, I think it was, saying, working nine to five. There's got to be more to life. And if anything has happened in the last three years, it's understanding there's got to be more to life than battling through. And the floods and devastation of the last few weeks, there's got to be more to life. And so God is drawing people in your street, in your family, in your neighbourhood. God hasn't changed. He is still the one who seeks and saves the lost. Anyway, back to our passage. I was thinking about it with Abraham and Sarah, and I figured if they had Facebook pages, you know where it says relationship status. It's complicated. Most certainly, as we read here, the name of Abraham's wife, or Abraham's wife, was Sarai. However, as the story unfolds, Abraham notes, or Abraham by this stage says, actually, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, not of my mother. So she's a sister by another mother. And she became my wife. 
So we're going to have a fascinating graphic come up next week. I'll bring the graphic to you. And that may be a little bit hard. So you've got Terah. He's got Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Remember I said that not necessarily in that order. In fact, Abraham is probably the youngest. And somewhere in the midst there was a sister, a daughter born, that's Sarah, and she married Abraham. Haran, who died back in Ur of the Chaldees, he had three kids, Milcah, Iscah, and Lot. So when he died, Abraham kind of took Lot under his wing. We will explore that more, and that graphic will make more sense over time. When we do our Discovery Bible study, one of the questions is, is there an example to follow? And I've just got to say, the answer is not always yes, particularly not as we follow the Old Testament. So often the answer is, don't follow that example. In fact, there's a verse in the New Testament that says that these examples were given to warn us. And so you can't follow... When we go through Abraham's story, we can't go, well, he was a great, because you know, he's known as our father in the faith. He's a great man of God, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean he got everything right. So you can't follow his life scene by scene and say, that's how I should live. At Abraham's time, marrying his half-sister really wasn't an issue. Under the law, it became an issue. And it's probably in the law because by then the human gene pool is degrading enough that marrying a sister or a half-sister starts to have increased risk in terms of birth defects. And so it became banned under the law. And it's still banned under our law for those same reasons. But this early in human history, the human gene pool was still quite pure. So it wasn't a problem back then. Although, having said that, it got Abraham into a few problems, as we shall see. But it's not only his family tree that was complicated. Abraham's whole life was quite complicated. And we shall see that as the story unfolds. And so while there are many points in Abraham's life that are worth emulating, there are also many points that simply act as warnings. One of the things we can learn is that we shouldn't allow our current life circumstance to determine whether God can or will use us. Because if God can find a young man in the middle of an idolatrous generation son of a father who manufactured and probably, probably manufactured and sold idols, then God can find and use any of us. None of us are disqualified by where we come from and none of us are disqualified by what we do. That for me is one of the greatest lessons that I find as I look at the characters of the Old Testament, particularly the great heroes. Abraham is one. The number of times he messes up, and yet God still uses him. We also have lives that are incredibly complicated at times. Sometimes it's because of choices we make. Sometimes it's because of choices that others make for us. 
sometimes it's just we live in a very, very complicated world. A very confused world. But if you think that the confusion in our world is new, then you haven't read the Bible. Because time and again we are told how sinful and evil man's heart is. And so the things we see happening in our world do not take God by surprise. They're not new to him. And so the demands on us emotionally, physically, on our time, on our resources, as we try to survive in this increasingly frenetic world, increasingly busy world, so much would take our eyes away from him, off God. For Abraham, we're told by the writers of the Hebrews that by faith Abraham, when called to go when called to go to a place that he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. That sounds really good until we get to the stories when the angels turn up and say, oh, you're going to become a a mother. And Sarah laughs. So much for faith. But you know, it's real. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience as he's talking about the wrestles of faith. He says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, for Abraham, he was leaving a background of having grown up in an idolatrous home to become the father of a new nation. In fact, multiple nations. And the father of our faith. And the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind Not that it doesn't matter, because it's made him who he is, but that's not going to hold him back. What he's focused on, what drives him, what empowers him, what gives him hope, what feeds his faith is what lies ahead. Life is complicated. 
It's full of complexity and challenges and distractions and things that would make us quit. And Gay can tell you there's been plenty of those for me over the last eight years. Many times I'm going, is it worth it? <laughs> and that's why I believe it is as important as ever for us to heed the words of Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are all the great heroes of the faith that the writer to the Hebrews has just been talking about right through from Adam and Noah and Abraham and right through. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As Lindley prayed before, she talked about the suffering of Christ on the cross, the, the, the tearing on his back against the rough cross where he had been beaten and the, the crown of thorns. And yet we're told by the writer of the Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're not promised an easy pathway without complication. That's not the testimony of Scripture. But consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Keep your eye on the prize. Fix our eyes on Jesus. As we read through the story of Abraham and Sarah, I pray that God will challenge and encourage us to keep going. I look forward to seeing more and more people experience healing. I ex look forward to seeing more and more people coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ and learning to walk in him and learning to lead others to him. But how much more I look forward to the day when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sickness and no more death for the old order of things will have passed away. So my final prayer. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.